service? All right, good. Don't want to act like the 8.30 service. By the way, I told them that live worship was starting next Sunday, so they're going to be mad next week. So that little mistake I made, that's fine. All right, Acts chapter 5, verse 33 is where we're going to pick it up. We've gotten back into our study in the book of Acts. And as we get into uh, this message, I'm going to assume that many, if not most of you, take the time to regularly evaluate where your life is at. I mean, if you're a Christian, you really ought to be doing that, is doing some kind of like self-evaluation. And we do that when we get into God's Word and and we say, you know what, I'm going to read God's Word, not just to know something, but I'm going to read God's Word to apply it. And, And when I say that, when I'm going to read God's Word to apply it to my life, I'm really underlying the assumption that I'm evaluating my life. I'm, I'm trying to grow in the things of God. There are some things in my life, the assumption is, there are some, some things in my life that need to change. Otherwise, why bother reading the Bible? Why bother doing a study? Why bother going to small group? Why bother uh, to take in another sermon? Except that we're evaluating ourselves on whether or not something everything in our life is, and this is a key phrase in today's message, whether these things are of God in our lives, whether our lives are being lived in a way that it is of God. And in today's passage, we're listening in on a closed-door meeting. That's always fun. Listening in on a closed-door meeting where the religious leaders of Israel are discussing, what do we do with the apostles? And both the the religious council of Israel and the apostles were facing a decision, trying to decide if what they were doing, what each group was doing, was of God or not. The council, for their part, they wanted to limit the spread of the gospel. They wanted to mitigate a damage to their power base. They wanted to restore the uh, civil order. They wanted to maintain the status quo in their society. The apostles wanted to continue to spread the gospel. They wanted to fulfill their mission. They wanted to see lives change. They weren't at all interested in maintaining the status quo. They wanted radical transformation in the lives of the people and in the nation of Israel. And from both groups, this religious council and the apostles, we're going to learn a powerful lesson in determining what is of God and what is not. And we're going to learn it from a wise man whose name was Gamaliel. And in Acts chapter 5, we'll read a little bit about him. So this is Acts 5, 3, 33, I'm sorry, to 42. You follow along. When they had heard this, and the they there is the religious leaders, and the this they're talking about is the gospel that Peter has just reiterated to them again in the previous verses. So when the religious council heard the gospel, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed. 
and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. All right, the way we're going to work through this passage is to see a seven, thinking through this evaluation now, a seven questions to determine whether or not my choices, the way I'm living my life, is of God. Seven questions. We'll start with this one. Have I let my emotions drive me? Have I let my emotions drive me? We saw in verse 33, when they heard the gospel from Peter, again, this is back in verses 30 and 31. We looked at that last week. That gospel presentation included a very stinging accusation that it was these religious leaders who had murdered Jesus. And in light of Peter and the apostles saying that, the text tells us, verse 33, they were, unsurprisingly, they were enraged and now wanted to kill them too. Now, by enraged, Luke uses Uh, This word here, it means infuriated. It means red-faced anger. In fact, the word says that uh, the word carries the idea that they were physically manifesting their anger. Like you could just look at them and know they were angry. And if, if you've ever seen a person like this and and, and they show how angry they are. If you need any examples of that, I wonder what that looks like when someone's like so angry, they're physically showing it. I mean, you could go to Google, you could um, search road rage videos, and you could watch some of those, and you'll see people who are physically, I wouldn't actually recommend that, but you could physically, you can see they're physically demonstrating how angry they are. And obviously, this led them down a path to wanting to kill the apostles themselves, they they had two options in front of them. We could kill the apostles ourselves. And in fact, just a couple of chapters from now, we're going to get to uh, the story about Stephen. Stephen becomes the first martyr of the church, and he's killed at the hands directly of the religious leaders. Or they had a second option, which is to do it by proxy, to do what they did with Jesus just several weeks prior to this. Um, they They could simply go to Pontius Pilate and say to him, hey, you know what? I know you killed Jesus, his followers out of control. The city's being turned upside down. Thousands of people are following after them. Would you guys take care of it? And would you kill these 12 apostles? And maybe that'll put an end to it. So they had these two decisions in front of them, and we can all agree that their rage was not going to help them make a good decision. No matter which of those options they picked, both were going to end in the apostles being murdered. Now, here's the principle we're going after with this, to not let our emotions drive us. This is Dr. Um, Sharam Hershmat. He said this in Psychology Today, individual decisions 
are best understood as the interactions between reason and emotion. When we are calm, slow rational thinking guides our decisions. However, strong emotions place a constraint on clear thinking, and certain vulnerable situations tend to trigger impulsive choices. Okay, and some of you are in the, are in the room going, yep, that's me, that's me. I've let pressure situations so overwhelm me, I've let my emotions get away from me, and that's resulted in bad decisions that I've made in the past. Impulsive choices. And if that's not you, maybe you know somebody who's like that. No one makes good decisions. No one makes good decisions when they're allowing their emotions to lead them. And so sorrow, in this case, anger, frustration, jealousy, and other emotions like it, they cannot be in the mix if good decisions are to be made. And so stepping back when you're facing that, stepping back, calming yourself down, taking the time to settle the emotions before any course of action is decided upon, that's absolutely essential if we're going to live in a way that is of God. And after we do that, one of the wisest things that we can do when we step back and say, I'm not making a decision right now, I'm too emotionally charged, one of the best things we could do is ask this second question, have I sought wise counsel? Have I sought out someone who can help me with this, who is not emotionally invested in it, and who has the objectivity or the impartiality to be able to help me reason through the decision that I need to make? Have I sought wise counsel? So despite their collective rage, there was a reasonable man among them on the council. Verse 34 says he was a Pharisee named Gamaliel a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people. And he stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. He's recognizing how emotionally charged the situation is. And just having the apostles in the room is going to be a problem. And so Gamaliel says, you know what? Let's just get them out of the room. Let's just have a reasonable conversation. And let's see if we can work this all out. And so they have this, this they put them out of the room for a little while and they have this closed door meeting where he says in verse 35, take care what you're about to do to these men. Because he already recognized whether they had stated verbally or not, he could just look at all the clues in the room and he could just go, you know what? This isn't going a good place. They're going to kill these guys. Now you may, uh, you may <clears throat> recall from the last message, there's two groups within the Jewish leadership. There was the Sadducees who we were introduced to in the last message, and those are the power brokers, the more liberal side of things, uh, the more liberal party. They're uh, definitely in power for power's sake, and they're not terribly religious or spiritual people. The other major party within uh, Israel's leadership were the Pharisees, and they were very pious, practicing, Bible-believing, uh, spiritual-type uh, leaders. And so these two leaders, the Sadducees have more of the control, but now Gamaliel, he's the one who's advising them and counseling them. He's the more spiritual one. And, um, and we find out later, by the way, that he's one of the Apostle Paul's teachers. Acts 22.3 tells us that. Prior to his conversion, Paul, too, was a Pharisee. And um, and the fact that they gave Gamaliel the, the floor speaks well to them. 
they were at least willing to hear him out even though he didn't represent their party. They sought out wise counsel. And no doubt that was informed by the fact that at least in the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, they believed it enough to know that it was a good thing to seek wisdom. Proverbs 1.5 says this, Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain, obtain guidance. And so implicit in the idea of learning and understanding isn't just that I've, I've brought some, some information in and I've retained the information, but implicit in the idea of this is action, that I've not only learned it, but now I'm putting that into play in my life. The, the, the knowledge that I've received is producing wise living, if I can put it that way. Now, ultimately for us as Christians, and that's who I'm preaching to, the ulti- ultimately for us, our wisdom comes from the Word of God. And the Apostle Paul, he writes this letter, uh, wrote a couple of letters to pastors, and he wrote one to Timothy, two to Timothy, and in 2 Timothy 3.16, he says this about Scriptures. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. That's the word inspiration. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And notice now the outcome of that is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's pretty all-encompassing. In other, in other words, in all matters of life, uh, and, and, and godliness and, and decisions we're going to make. It's the Word of God that's going to help us. It, it informs our decision-making. And then just a few paragraphs later, in the very same letter, he says this, this is why it's so important to be grounded in the Word of God. He said in 2 Timothy 4.3, for the time is coming, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Let's call that 2021. Okay, that's the time, and it's been happening for a while, where people are not enduring sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Itching ears, wanting to hear a certain thing, they're going to go after counselors who are going to say the thing that they want to hear. And so even as we think about the idea of going out to find counsel who's going to be impartial and help us live our life in a way that honors the Lord, even while we do that, we recognize there's a danger or a caution here that when we're faced with these decisions and we seek this counsel, we may go after counsel that just says the thing we want to hear. Not the best counsel, not the most impartial counsel. So we can seek the advice, and and these are all great places to go, all things being equal. We could seek the advice of parents and of counselors and of mentors and of pastors and and friends, and and probably every person in this room could think of three or four people that they have in their life. If I had this thing going on, I would go and ask this person. And we have certain people that will go to it, you know, if we want to hear a certain thing or or if, if we're making a decision under a certain topic, a certain area of our life. But we can seek the advice of all these different counselors. But if the counsel we receive is not consistent with the word of God, we should reject it. If we know we've gone to a person who's going to say exactly what we want them to say, we should reject that and seek better counsel. Seek wise, impartial, word-centered counsel. 
when making life decisions, life choices. All right, here's a third question. Have I, have I learned from the past? Gamaliel reminds them of two historical events that they would have been aware of, and he's going to take them into history to learn some things. Verse 36, Thutis rose up, claimed to be somebody, 400 people joined him, he was killed, everybody who joined him was scattered, and the whole thing came to nothing. He gives a second example, in case that one didn't convince you, verse 37, he says pretty much the exact same thing about Judas the Galilean. Gamaliel's point is, don't overreact. Don't overreact to this one situation because this one too, in all likelihood, from his perspective at that time, this one too likely is not to come, is likely to come to nothing as well. Now I know we're talking about history here. So I know as soon as we talk about history, people's eyes start to glaze over. And I know that's the fault of so many really bad high school history teachers right? Who only taught you learn these dates, learn these names, test on Friday, right? And so you just were list, just memorizing lists of names and dates and not really understanding history. And I'm not really concerned at all that you would have the right date for something or the right name for something. But what we must have are the lessons of history locked into our hearts and minds. In fact, a very common quote, I've used it before, George Santayana said this, Um, Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. You've heard that before. Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And in fact, that idea, he said that in the 20th century, but that very idea is echoed in what the Apostle Paul said when he wrote a letter to the Corinthians. He said this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. He said, these things, speaking of the Old Testament narratives, these things happened to them the saints of the Old Testament, as an example to us. They were written down for our instruction. We're reading the Old Testament. We're reading these stories about Abraham and Moses and Isaiah and the children of Israel. We're reading all of this so that we can learn and not fall into the same sins that they did, not make the same mistakes that they did. The Holy Spirit inspired the Scripture so that we would have available historical examples to follow as we seek to live our lives for Christ. And the reason why this is so important to us today is because of something that King Solomon said. Look at this from Ecclesiastes 1.9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. So why make the same mistakes? Why do the very same things that people of old did? Why face the same consequences that they faced when those can be avoided? But every generation comes in all throughout history. Every generation comes in thinking that they know better than the last generation. Isn't that true? Every generation thinks they know better than the last generation. And here's one universal truth about humanity. Every human being is dumb. Write that down. Every, 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 I'm including myself. I'm dumb. There are so many times in the past that I have failed to learn from the errors 
and examples of others. In fact, worse than that, I'm so dumb. I've failed to learn from my own history. I've done the same things over and over again. Every crisis is cyclical. Every trial has been experienced before. We need to learn from that. So have I learned from the past? Question three. Question four. Have I considered all the options? Have I stepped back to really consider all the options that are before me? Gamaliel advises them, verse 38, keep, this, here's his counsel, okay, after it all. He gives them the two examples, and he says, keep away from these men and let them alone. He's, he's giving them the rationale for this. He, he flow charts it out for them, or he gives them uh, an option A and an option B. He says, option A, if it is, sorry, option A is, um, for if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. If this is just a guy gathering a following for his own purposes, it's going to fail. Don't worry about it. Just leave it alone. Same, same outcome. He's saying, just leave them alone. If it is a man, it's just going to fail. But then he says, option B, the other side of the flowchart, he says this, but if it is of God, verse 39, if it is of God, there's our key phrase, you will not be able to overthrow them. So why try? And then he, he, he adds this really important comment, which leaves open the possibility that he saw something in the apostles that was compelling even to him. He said, you might even be found opposing God. Now, as John Polhill, one of the commentators, in his commentary, he said this, there's irony here because there was already ample evidence. I mean, by this point in the preaching of the gospel and the advance of the kingdom, there's ample evidence that this movement was indeed of God. If you go back to chapter 5, verse 12, verse we looked at last week, it said that many signs and wonders were being done by the Holy Spirit through the apostles. I mean, all these people getting healed? Ample evidence that this is of God. Not to mention the fact that thousands and thousands of people are placing their faith in Jesus Christ. There's ample evidence that this is of God. And that could be the very reason why Gamaliel says this here. I mean, this wasn't anything like Thutis. It's nothing like Judas the Galilean because the leader of this movement, Jesus, had in fact been crucified from their perspective. No talk of the resurrection. Their leader had already been killed. But here we are several weeks later, several two, three months down the road, and thousands of people, far from the followers being scattered, the, the, the followers are now multiplying. And so, Gamaliel is offering them these options to consider, but it really boils down to one path forward, which is keep away from these men and leave them alone. Don't do anything rash. In fact, don't do anything. 
Instead, let God work out his will. And I mean, so often, this is so hard for us, so often we move outside of God's will because we act according to our own drives and desires. When we make the decision we want to make, very often we're making big life decisions. We're not even thinking about what God might want. Not even asking the question. He's trying to get them to ask that question. We have to give consideration to the fact that God is always at work, God is always leading, and we are always on mission for Him. So here we are. We're, we've, we're, we're through four questions. We're more than halfway there. I'm trying to determine whether or not my choices are of God. Here's question five. Have I committed to the decision? See, whatever decision I make, I want to be committed to that decision. I need to be confident enough that God is actually at work in the thing that I've decided. If I've taken the time, if I've sought the counsel, if I've, if I've, if I've sought the Lord over this, then I want to be committed to that. Verse 39, the council, it says, the council took his advice. But did the council really take his advice? Because verse 40 says that when they had called the apostles to come back in, the verse tells us that they beat them. Gamaliel had said, leave them alone. But they were so enraged that they still had to beat them to satisfy some kind of blood lust that they had inside of them, some carnal desire that they had to exact some vengeance on them. By the way, this beating is no insignificant thing. It was um, what was known in Israel as the, as the 40 lashes less one. So 39 lashes would have fallen across their bodies. They would have been stripped down uh, to their waists. Uh, the a lash that was used was made of calf hide, and it had three ends on it so that it tore the flesh when it hit. There would have been two blows on the, bla- on the back for every one blow on the chest. In history, it was known that some would have succumbed to the beating and died. So these apostles were lashed, each of them 39 times. Uh, this is not, in, in, in the wording of justice, this is not a slap on the wrists. And then repeating um, what they had said, so they beat them all, and then they repeat something that they said to them on their first arrest back in chapter 4, verse 18. In verse 40, they said, uh, they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. So I just say this, they, they mostly followed Gamaliel's advice, but not entirely. And so we need to be committed to the decision. These men were not committed to the decision. And I'm not saying that we can never change a decision once made. That would be foolish. It would be short-sighted, of course. But what needs to be said is this. If you are in God's will, and if the road ahead seems like a difficult one, remain committed to the decision that you believe is in the center of God's will, even if it's a difficult road ahead. Because in our culture today, and I think we would all agree with this, our society today, there's so little stick to so little endurance and persevering through a difficult season. Too much quit in our culture today. Things get hard, we quit. No longer easy for me, I'm going to find a new way to do it. It's true in the culture around us, and sadly, even for Christians today, there's so little endurance, 
so little stick-to-itiveness. And really what we're saying is we need to be committed to the decision we're saying is we need to be committed to the wisdom of God and what His Word says to us and not give up on that. Now here's the critical question, number six. No matter how things turn out, have I surrendered to God's will? I can stick with my decision if I'm fully surrendered to the will of God. So these apostles, they're freshly beaten. Verse 41 says, they left the presence of the council. This is incredible to me. This is is like crazy time. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name I mean, I don't even have a category to think about being lashed 39 times and walk away happy. Do you? Is there a person in the room who could even possibly understand what that level of discipleship and commitment to Christ is even like? They walked away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's surrender to God's will no matter what the consequences. Even if it's hard, I'm going to stay the course. They're rejoicing. And you have to believe that they're rejoicing because of what they heard Jesus say back in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to turn to it. I only thought about putting this in this morning. And so it's not up on the slide, but Matthew 5 uh, verses um, Uh, 10, 11, 12, this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the end of the Beatitudes, right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Jesus said. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. This is what Jesus said to them. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I mean, they're thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. They just got beaten. They're thinking, we just got beaten like the prophets. And God's promised us that we're going to be blessed in the midst of this, and we ought to rejoice in this because we've got this incredible promise of heaven. And, 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 and they're, they know they're right in the center of the thing that God wants them to be and to do. God considered them, and this word is striking. God considered them worthy, worthy to be beaten. I, I, I think about the way I am. I'll just speak for myself. I think about the way that I am with the Lord, and when I think about my worthiness before the Lord and the things that I should get when I think about my worthiness before the Lord, and I never think of beating I never think of any suffering at all, in fact. I'm trying to figure out how to be counted worthy of more blessing. That's what I'm I'm thinking about. I'm, I'm thinking about how to be counted worthy of greater influence. I'm thinking about how to be counted worthy of more success, more prosperity, more health, more peace in my life. I, I, I'm thinking about how could I be counted worthy of just more good things? Does that sound about right? 
You too? But these Christians, these apostles, they're rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer, 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 dishonor for the name. And our problem is, we live in such a success-oriented culture that we see suffering only one way. We see suffering as failure. We see dishonor as a negative. We, we, we think if you're suffering, God has forgotten you, or God is disciplining you, or God is judging you. You must have sin in your life. You must have done something wrong. This is our default setting. This is the way we think. And when we think this way as Christians, it's like we never read the book of Job. It's like the book of Job isn't even in our Bibles because when we say that, oh, if you're suffering, you must have done something wrong. You must have sinned in your life. God's, you know, We're echoing the exact words of Job's so-called friends and all of the things they said to him about why they thought he was suffering. And we know from Job chapter one, that was not the reason. So listen, until you and I embrace a proper biblical view of suffering that starts at the cross with with you and me being crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20, until we get that proper view, that theology of suffering, we will never fully grasp the Christian life We will settle for something less than the abundant life that God intends for us. We will miss out on the full expression of His grace and mercy and the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's what's at stake if we don't embrace a proper biblical view of suffering. So surrender to His will. Surrender to His will. And then understand that there are only four states for the Christian life, the four states of the Christian life. This is going to help us frame this up so that we understand that suffering may be God's purpose for us. So as we think about the four states of the Christian life, the four states of the Christian life, first of all, fall fall into just two categories, obedience and disobedience. There's nothing else. There's no middle ground between obedience and disobedience. If you're a Christian, you are either currently today in obedience to God or you are in disobedience to God. There's no other category. So two categories, and then off of those two categories, two possible outcomes for each. I just made them into a list, not a not a cool chart. Here we go. Number one, I'm obedient and blessed. I'm obedient and blessed. And when I'm obedient, God does reward that. He does bless that. That blessing, though, comes to us as, his, as a grace gift from us, or it could be, as he stated in the Sermon on the Mount, it could be reward. And so I'm obedient and blessed, or I could be obedient and suffering, and, and when we're obedient and suffering, it means that, that God has some higher purpose at play that you can't see right now, but you need to stay the course, continue to be obedient even through the suffering. But then I could also be disobedient and blessed. Imagine that. I think I've spent most of my life disobedient and blessed by God. 
I'm disobedient and blessed. That's entirely the grace and mercy of God. It's the grace of God. I'm receiving what I do not deserve. It's the mercy of God. I am not receiving what I do deserve. And then this final state, you can figure out what it is. I'm disobedient and suffering. Well, listen, that means that the judgment of God is coming down on your head or the discipline of God because he's trying to get your attention and bring you back to a good place. Every Christian lives in one of these four states throughout their entire Christian life. And the situation that we're reading here in Acts chapter 5 is, it's number two. The apostles were obedient and suffering. They were suffering dishonor for God's higher purposes. And understanding this, this is going to help us grasp what it means to be surrendered to His will and what it means to make decisions that are of God. All right, one more question, almost at the end. And this should come as no surprise because we're studying the book of Acts. Question seven, have I kept my focus on the gospel mission? Because no matter what we're doing or where we live or what stage of life we're in, whether we're in vocational ministry or not, we are all on mission to make disciples and plant churches, every one of us if we're a Christian. Now, these apostles, they'd already been arrested twice, already imprisoned. Now they've been beaten for their faith. Verse 42, and still every day from this moment on, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They just kept preaching the gospel. They kept preaching that the Messiah is the man that they had crucified. And as the apostles had declared in verse 30 in last week's message, whom God raised from the dead. I mean, the surefire way to keep your perspective and ensure that what you're deciding and doing is of God is to be sold out to the mission that has been given to you by Jesus Christ. If you're all about the mission, if you're all about the gospel, you're not going to go wrong on this. Is your focus then, is your focus on the gospel mission of Jesus Christ as you think about your life? Why do you go to your, to, to your job? Why do you live where you live? Why do you come to this church? Why do you have the friends that you have? Why are you engaged in the ministry you're engaged in? Why do you pursue rest and leisure? Every aspect of your life, all of the things that you own, the house, the car that you have, everything that you have, leveraged for the sake of the kingdom of God and his mission. Is your focus on the gospel mission? Is your life aligned with the heart of God for those who have not yet been saved, their sins cleansed by his blood? Because that's God's heart, is to save people who aren't saved. Is that your heart? Keep your focus on the mission, on the gospel, and you'll make the best decisions. People get to the end of their lives, and, and, and if God gives them His grace to actually be able to ponder these things at the end of their lives, so many people have, have so many regrets about that, how they've lived. But I'm going to tell you this right now. If you don't want to have any regrets at the end of your life, put the gospel at the center now. Make the mission the driving compulsion of your life, and you will have no regrets. And so seven questions are going to help us evaluate our lives. And if you've not evaluated your life recently, if you've drifted, if you find yourself struggling off course in any way, or maybe you're facing a big decision of some kind in light of what we've heard this morning, 
from Gamaliel, from the Word of God, now is a great time to do that evaluation. And you could simplify it just down to this, is my life of God or not? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you um, again for your incredible kindness toward us in saving those of us who have, have reached out and received your offer have Jesus as our Lord and Savior. You've been kind to us, gracious. You've poured out such good things in our lives. And Father, I pray that through the Word of God today, we would be rekindling the fire inside of ourselves to be aligned with your will and to be on mission for you. Father, do the deep work of convincing us and convicting us of these things transform us. And Father, where there needs to be repentance, God, I pray that we would be quick to do that. And Father, that you would continue your good, good work through us and that the name of Jesus Christ would be lifted high. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.